Well, Merry Christmas. I love this time of year. I want you to do an exercise with me. Think about and say out loud, what is your favorite Christmas decoration? What is it? Say it louder. I can't hear you. I can't hear. Say it again. It doesn't work that way. Okay. So you have a favorite Christmas decoration. It might be the tree topper on the top of your tree. And I don't know if you're a camp star or camp angel as uh, what, what you put on the top of your tree. You might be colored lights or white lights or blinking lights or solid lights. Um, you probably have some ornaments that remind you of holidays or events of the past. My favorite Christmas decoration of all time is the nativity scene. This has been part of my family ever since I can remember. And uh, my mom had created a nativity scene for our family. And she, she made it, she painted it, and it's still the same one that she puts up today. And I hear the same story every year. You probably have those stories that you hear every year when you get together with your family. But, but this one is the way that my mom explains to me why I am the way that I am. She recalls being in a small, unventilated room while she was crafting and painting and mixing her paints with paint thinner to paint this beautiful nativity scene. So the joke is, Mike, you are the way you are because your mom uh, inhaled paint fumes and paint thinner fumes while she was pregnant with you. So I love that story. I love being part of that tradition. I love having that in my heritage and and uh, being able to see that scene every year is such a comfort to me. And I remember as a kid, I would stare at that scene and I would see all the little things and it. The whole thing just tells a story that we get to read in scripture today. We're going to focus on one part of that story, though, and it's the story of the three wise men. Now, we're going we're gonna to read that text, and then we'll, we'll go a bit deeper as to what these three wise men were all about, because it's extremely profound and poignant for today. And I just want to warn you, this is going to get real. That's what this story is about. So uh, let's get into the text, all right? We're going to start with Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with them. And assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for you shall come, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So this is the foundation of the wise men in the nativity scene. And let me correct some facts here that we may have gotten wrong in our, in our scene. Um, the Bible doesn't say in here, it doesn't say at all uh, that there were three wise men. It just says there were wise men, but there were three gifts, three distinct gifts. Um, and also at this time, we in our manger scene, we have those three wise men hovering over a baby Jesus. But if you follow the story and read into what they were following and, and, and looking at history and Herod, Jesus was probably two or three years old by the time the wise men showed up in, in the home. So they didn't really approach the manger with baby Jesus and give him gifts, but they found him after a couple of years. And here's the profoundly good news for you and me that we, we, we may miss if we forget the context here. These wise men or magi, they weren't Jewish. They were from the East. They were astrologers. And somehow they had seen and they had believed a prophecy that this star would lead them to the Savior, not just of the Jews, but the Savior of the world. Of all beliefs, all foundations, all faiths, all theologies, that Jesus would come and be the uniting force that brings all people, the whole world, to him. It's so beautiful. And that's good news for you and me because more than likely, you and I aren't Jewish either. <laughs> so it's really good news for us. And I always found out, I found this very fascinating. The order that these gifts are mentioned is comical to me because I, I play it out like it's a scene because there's the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, and they all symbolize something different. The gold uh, represents a, a gift fit for a king. It's the, it's the kingship of, the, of Jesus. And then the frankincense is a gift for a priest, and it's, it's, he's the high priest. He's the spiritual leader that will lead them. And then there's the myrrh. Myrrh always represents some type of suffering. So it's like there's this gift presented to this child and it says, here's some gold for the king. Here's some frankincense for the priest. And here's some myrrh because this is about to get real. Like it's just, it's a sobering truth that the salvation of the world is going to cost Jesus something. And it's going to cause suffering and weeping. Oh. It's a very sobering, sobering truth that that myrrh represents. It reminds me of my ordination gift from um, my best friend. When I was ordained, he got me three things for my ordination gift. <laughs> he got me a ministry manual 
which has got like uh, how to, what to say when you visit someone in a hospital. It's like a, a, a quick reference guide for how to do a funeral, how to do a wedding. It's been awesome. I've used it a lot because uh, being a second career guy, I'm new to a lot of this stuff. But ministry manual, a day planner, because we're going to have to be very organized. We're going to meet with a lot of people, day planner. And then he got me the gift that made, was kind of this sobering reality that says this is about to get real. He got me a bottle of tequila. And that was very sobering. It's like, this is your ministry survival kit, is what he called it. So I kind of look at the, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh as kind of that same thing. Like, this is about to get real. This is, this is going to cost you something. It's very sobering to me. I want to introduce you to myrrh a little bit. This is some myrrh. And so in here, this is what it looks like. And uh, it has, uh, you can see it's like, it's like resin globules here. And um, it's fascinating how they harvest this and how you get it. If this isn't absolutely pure myrrh, if it was, I'd have it insured because it's very expensive to get pure, absolutely pure myrrh. Um, but it, it's these globules, and in its larger form, it's kind of like an amber thing. And then, but in its common form, it comes in these little globules. And we take these globules, and we put it in an incense burner like this. Now this is this is a very simple incense burner, and you put the globule in there, and the tea light candle burns it. And I've got the smell in my home right now, and it's it's really a unique odor. It's uh, it's kind of an earthy, um, floral, but not floral, but beautiful, but earthy, sweet. There's a sweetness to it. Um, we had some burning for a little too long the other day, and. And I just started smelling around and I said to Heather, it smells like a, a car overheated, like the antifreeze is steaming because it was a little sweet, but a little, um, you know, earthy. But anyway, it's a really nice odor here. Can you? Is that nice? That smells good. So uh, we've had that in our home uh, all week as I, or for longer than that, but just as I kind of live in the idea of just being present with myrrh and smelling it. Myrrh had a lot of practical purposes. It was used as an antiseptic, as an analgesic, an aromatic. The Greeks used it for embalming. The Jews used it to prepare a body for entombment. Um, and it had many other mythical and spiritual and cultural symbolism engaged in how to deploy it as an oil, as an incense, um, as a mix in some type of perfume. Um, but it, the, the one thing that myrrh always has in common is every practical application for myrrh has something to do with suffering. It's either to ease pain, to heal infection, to cover up the stench of death. Um, it was used in a perfume to cover up bad smells in the body. Um, but it was always associated with pain. And of these three gifts, it just foretells this sobering truth that you, being the king and the high priest, it's going to cost you something.
there's gonna, it's gonna be there's gonna be suffering coming, and so this gift was um, very foretelling, and and it shows even more powerfully if you just look at the New Testament. Let's look at the Gospels. Myrrh only shows up three times in the Gospels, and all three times myrrh is directly intersecting with Jesus. The first time is here where the wise men give myrrh as a gift to the king as they're bowing before him. The first time he is publicly acknowledged as Lord and King. The second time is uh, at his crucifixion. As Jesus is hanging on the cross in the book of Mark, the soldiers who mocked him and placed Jesus on the cross to die, they lifted a sponge-like thing soaked in wine and mixed with myrrh to help ease his suffering. And Jesus declined it. He refused the comfort. The third time that we see myrrh is at, in preparation for his entombment. After he died, um, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they used 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe and wrapped him in linen straps to prepare him for his entombment. Look at where those three things, those three incidents where myrrh is intersecting with Jesus. The foretelling of the suffering, the climax of his suffering, and the end of his bodily suffering. That's pretty foretelling. And I see, I see this connection in the way myrrh is harvested and why it's associated with this suffering savior. Because myrrh is a fragrant resin and it comes from this small bushy tree cultivated in um, the Arabian Peninsula. And the grower would bruise the tree, then they would scar the tree, slice the tree, one book said stripe the tree, and then the resin would bleed out of the tree. But they wouldn't scar or slice too much. It was a little bit at a time. And then they would wait seven to 14 days, one to two weeks. And then they go back and they harvest the resin after, and this is the words they use, after it weeps for one to two weeks. After the tree weeps, they harvest the resin. They glean it, they collect it, they store it for about three months for it to harden into these fragrant little globules that I showed you. When I was reading that about the idea of the tree weeping and the res with the resin, it made me think of, it made me question the presuppositions that we make about what it means that Jesus suffered. Because we, we hear about Jesus suffering and we think about his physical torture and his death and his, his beating and his, his marks and his bruises um, and his blood and, and the crown of thorns and the dying on the cross. We think of all that like what a horrible physical death. But Jesus has already declared that he, he cares way more about our spiritual the spiritual soul, the eternal soul, than he does the physical world. And so it got me thinking, where else in Scripture did we see Jesus express suffering? And I went immediately, immediately to Luke chapter 19. In the middle of Luke chapter 19 is the second time that Jesus is presented publicly 
as king. And this is the account of what we call Palm Sunday. This is where Jesus walks into Jerusalem and is heralded as Hosanna, Hosanna, the king has come. And this celebration that Jesus is the Messiah. It's the, it's, the, it's the second time, but it's the first time Jesus publicly receives that, um, that title and, and wears that. But around this in Luke 19 is a very telling story. Now be, be careful, it's going to be a sobering truth here. In Luke 19, we meet this guy named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus interacted with Jesus and he heard some um, transformative truth about his sin and his shame and what he had done and Zacchaeus turned his life around and he repented and he said, I'm going to give back to those that I've stolen from. I'm going to follow Jesus as my Lord and Savior and he is now my king. And right after that, Jesus tells this parable to all of those who are there because they just witnessed Zacchaeus declare that Jesus is his king. And Jesus tells this parable called the ten minas, and it goes like this. There's a master, and he gives ten minas. Mina is just a, a measure of currency. It doesn't matter what it's worth or what it is. He gives ten things of value, things that can be used, to ten servants. And, and then we hear back um, from three, because when Jesus gives them these ten, he says, I am your master, and I'm giving you these ten things, and I want you to put them to use. Put them to use for my purposes. I'm the master of the mina, and I'm, I'm your master, and I'm giving you these 10 things to use. And, and it's, it's tragic what happens next because those servants, they reject him. They don't reject the fact that, man, that's a lot of work. I don't want to do as master. And so when the master comes back, he uh, asks for an account of what they did with the mina. And... Uh, there were there was two guys who took or two servants who took the mina and they put it to use one came back and said you gave me 10 i earned you 10 your mina earned you 10 and it's very specific he says your mina earned you 10 more and then someone else came and said your 10 mina earned you five more and the master says oh great job because you have been faithful with a little, I'm going to give you 10 cities to rule over. I'm going to give you five cities to rule over. And then there was a third servant that came back and just said, hey, the mining you gave me, I buried it. Here, you can have it back. You didn't want to work for it, master. You didn't want to do anything. You wanted me to do all the work. Um, and you didn't earn it. You are not someone who should get anything because you didn't work for it. And uh, that that servant... Uh, the reaction to that servant was harsh. And I'm going to read to you the response. Now, now keep in mind, this is Jesus telling a parable about some um, servants that are just characters in a fictional story to prove a point, right? These aren't actual people. This is a parable. And there's a master and there's these servants. But Jesus was was telling this parable to prove a point because of the context is he just saw Zacchaeus submit to Jesus as master and there was this declaration of, you know, the Lord has come, the, the, the Lord has come to save all mankind. And then there's this parable of this. So listen to this in Luke 19, 24 through 27. This is the response of the master and what he said when the third servant came back and just rejected him as master, he said, and he said to those who stood by, 
Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten mina. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten mina. I tell you, everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now keep in mind, this is a parable. This is a story here. And right after this story, this, is, this story ends here. It picks up with what they call Jesus' triumphal entry as the king declaring himself in this story, in both the story of Zacchaeus and this, on both sides of this, Jesus is the master. We are his servants, if we so choose. The plan of Jesus is that he comes as a king, priest, and suffering savior to be our master, to give us our purpose so we can accomplish his purposes on this earth. Because God doesn't exist for us to be comforted and to find an eternal resting place. We exist for God's purposes, which is to share his love with those who need to hear and feel and know his love. That's God's plan A, and he doesn't tell us a plan B. So Jesus is recognized as this king. And after his triumphal entry, it's still in Luke chapter 19, there's this scene that, that is, is sobering. After all of, the, all of the hubbub about him being entered or entering in on a donkey and the palms being laid down before him, there's this scene in Luke 19, chapter 41, where it says, And he drew, when he drew near and saw the city, Jesus wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the day will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children with you. He weeps because he knows that many will not acknowledge him as their master. And so he weeps. Scripture tell us, tells us that it's God's will that none should perish. No, not one. So when Jesus comes and the Magi come from the east, from not even, they're probably not even a monotheistic belief system. They were some type of astrologers. We don't know exactly what they believed, but it wasn't what the traditional Jewish belief was. But this declaration that Jesus is here for all mankind. And the plan is for those of us who have been transformed by the love of Jesus, we treat other people and we share with other people the love of Jesus. That's the evangelistic strategy. That's, for lack of a better phrase, but that is the, the plan and purpose. And Jesus knows that some will gnash their teeth in defiance and will refuse the gift of his life 
that he's given for those that he loves so much. And so he weeps. He weeps. What blows me away with this is how much Jesus believes in us. Think about that. My big idea today is a, is a call that we believe in Jesus because he believes in us. Today, Jesus is inviting you to join him in his purpose. And I think that's what our hearts truly desire. We don't truly desire an eternal resting place after we die. We don't truly, that's not all there is. Our heart of hearts truly desires to make an eternal impact on this world. God put that desire inside of us and he promises that he'll fulfill it as we acknowledge him as our master. as we join him, acknowledging that he has given us this mina. He has given us our time, our talent, our treasure. He's given us contacts and skills. He's given us passion and desire and energy and resources that we can use for his kingdom. There isn't anything you own that isn't intended to be used for God's purpose. And you'll need some myrrh along the way. Because as we share in his purpose, we will share in his suffering. Look at verse 27 again. This might have been shocking to hear, but let's, this is the parable of the master and what happens to those who reject him as master. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, I first read that and I went, man, slaughter, that's a harsh, harsh word. and What a horrible master. But as I started to think about this, I realized every one of us who has given our life over to Jesus, the master, we have laid to rest our old life. Our old life is gone and behold, a new life has come. And the way I feel about my old life, I like the word slaughter. I need it to be slaughtered. I need it to be gone. And in our new life, we are blessed with the honor of sharing the grace that's been entrusted to us with those around us. The grace that was entrusted to us by our King, our High Priest, and our suffering Savior, Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus, for he believes in you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege of serving you. I thank you that you have called us to this, this glorious new life where our purpose is beyond anything we could imagine, that our purpose and our days are filled with opportunities to share your love with your people. Help us to not lose sight of that. Help us to embrace the newness of life and the slaughtering of our old life, God. Thank you for the gift that we're not bound and trapped and stuck in the corner by our sin and shame and, and guilt and fear, but we are set free 
We're set free by a new life with a new purpose and a new mission. Breathe that into us this season. Thank you for Jesus and for this Christmas season. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.